Amen. Welcome once again to our live stream service. I am Pastor Jason, and thank you for choosing to join with us this morning. He is a good, good father, and the reason that we have come this morning is to worship him, to praise him, to lift his name high above all other names this morning. We are working our way through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 19. What we are going to see today is, is two worlds collide. And I've chosen to break up the, the tail end of Acts chapter 19 into, into two different sections. This morning, we will see two worlds collide. And, and as I was digging into this passage this week, I was reminded of a story that I'm, I'm not really certain if this is true or not. As I looked on the Internet, I could not see any verifiable evidence that this is, did indeed happen. But perhaps you've heard this story, and I think it, it represents well where we are going in the book of Acts this morning. The story goes something like this. There, there is a captain of a ship who is traveling with his crew one night, and as they are traveling, he looks into the dark night, and ahead of him he sees some, some faint lights. And without hesitation, for he's a good captain, he, he tells his signalman, okay, hey, you need to send a message, and I want you to send this message. Adjust your course 10 degrees south. And so that message is sent, and instantly a reply message is given. And that message is, Adjust your course 10 degrees north. And the captain, of course, becomes angry. Why? Because the captain is not used to being ignored. He's not used to people not listening to his orders. And so what does he do? He sends another message. And he says this. He says, adjust your course 10 degrees north. Why? For I am the captain. And again, a quick response is made to the captain, and the response is, adjust your course 10 degrees north. For I am a seaman, third class Jones. And immediately, the captain decides that he knows exactly what he is going to do. And he knows that if he responds like this, that his response will elicit all sorts of fear. And arouse this third seaman, Glass Jones, to actually listen to him. And so this is what the captain says. He says, adjust your course 10 degrees south. Why? For I am a battleship. If you know the story, you know the response. The response is, adjust your course 10 degrees North, why? For I am a lighthouse. I am a lighthouse. I, I'm sorry, no matter how big your battleship is, you are not going to be able to stand against a lighthouse. What we are going to see this morning, clearly in the book of Acts, is this two worlds collide. And so many times when two worlds collide, there are sparks. And that is what we are going to see this morning as, as these two different worlds collide. The world of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with an entirely different 
world. That is the world of idol worship. The world of what, what she is called here, the goddess Artemis, who is also known as the goddess Diana, the goddess Aphrodite. And what we can look at is we can look at this as, as, as these two worlds collide, the world of Satan and the world of God. What we will see is that the world of Paul coming up against the world of this man named Demetrius. And in the end, one will be left standing while the other is no longer around. And what we could see is if we looked around today in our world and you pulled up Aphrodite or you pulled up Diana or you pulled up Artemis on the Internet, you would find that that religion is, is no longer being practiced. And yet so many of us are gathered together today for one particular purpose, and that is to read this, to hear this being taught, the word of God, and in order to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. As our worship of Jesus is still around, and yet this worship of Artemis is, is, is long, long gone. And what we will see today, what we will be reminded of today is this, that all men are worshipers. All men truly are worshipers. Why? Because we were designed that way. That is how God has created us. He has created us to worship something or someone. Either we will worship the one and true and only living God, or we will worship an imposter. John Calvin says it like this in his Institutes. He says, the heart of every human being is an idol factory. The heart of every human being is an idol factory. What does that mean? That means that we create idols. That so many times we worship the created thing rather than the creator. And unless God steps in and pulls us towards himself, in the end, what we will do is to make something else to worship. And we will see this this morning in, in living, vivid color happening in Ephesus are as they are a people who worship idols, who worship this goddess, Artemis, or Diana, Aphrodite. And as we look at this, we will see what the answer is to the question of why do you worship who you worship? And how can you get away from worshiping who you are worshiping? If you are not worshiping God, you are worshiping someone else or something else. And, and what is the answer? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. That is what we will see this morning. As the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can take us and take us from the point where we are worshiping all these other things and become true worshipers of Jesus Christ become true worshipers of God alone. And that is what we will see this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 28 this morning. As we will see these two worlds collide. So follow along with me. Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 28. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having 
sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver, shrines for Artemis, was bringing in no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So reads the word of God. Let let me pray for our time in the word. The Holy Spirit would have his way in our hearts. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us your word, your inspired, your holy, your oh-so-powerful word. And we pray this morning that, that I would not be the teacher that it would not be my thoughts, not my insights that are communicated, but that it would be yours. That your Holy Spirit would, would be our teacher this morning, would be our guide. That we would learn from what we see here in that passage in Acts. That as two worlds collide, that we are to be your lights that we are to be different in this world and that you want us to to live differently, that you want our lives to be a testament, to be a testimony of you and the change that you are doing in our lives. So would you teach us this morning how we are to honor you in this world that we live in, how we are not to be conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would be lights for you in this world as the believers in Ephesus were, as the Apostle Paul was. So guide our time. Thank you for this morning and for the opportunity we have to gather together in your name and to lift your name high. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The gospel changes everything. That, that, that is the reality. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the gospel comes in and it changes everything. That is what we are going to see in, in Ephesus. In fact, that's what we've already seen in Ephesus. Do you recognize the power of the gospel? Do you recognize the influence that the gospel can have? Not just on one particular person, not just on a group of people, not just on a city, but on an entire culture. The gospel can come in and have a dramatic effect. 
an amazing effect, and that is what we are going to see this morning. This morning, we're going to see that the gospel brought into focus in three different ways. Three different ways that the gospel is, is, is presented to us. But as you look at it, you may think, no, this is about some man named Demetrius. That this is about Satan. This is about how Satan is making inroads and how, and how Satan has taken these folks in Ephesus and he's, and he's shackled them to their sin and to the deception of following him. And yet, in very much the same way that that was the case in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, where we ministered for so many years, as the gospel comes forth, and as the gospel is responded to in Ephesus, just as it was responded to in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, lives are changed, cultures are changed, people are changed, and that is what we are going to see. And the first aspect of the gospel that we see is, in verses 21 to 22 is this, Paul's plan for the gospel. Make no mistakes what this is all about. This is about the gospel. This isn't about Paul. This isn't so much even about Demetrius. Is it as it is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it is making a change in Ephesus. And as a result of what the gospel is doing, and what the church of Jesus Christ called the way is now doing and how they are living. We see a whole bunch of commotion happen. But really, it's all about the gospel. And what we see first is, is Paul's plan for the gospel. Look at verses 21 and 22 again. As we see that, that Paul has a plan, he has a purpose that he's come up with. As we see here in 21 to 22, now after these things were finished, what things? Pointing back to what we saw last week. Now after what the fear of the Lord had gripped the believers to such an extent that their lives were dramatically changed. What did they do? They went into their houses. They took these books that were not only costly, but they were all about who they were. This was their worldview. This is what they did. They, they followed all of the magic potions and what have you in these books. And what did they do with those books? They lit this great big bonfire that was not only a public statement, it was a costly statement. It cost them something. So that is what had just happened after these things, after Christ's church had, had publicly and costly professed their faith in Christ and even showed us as we looked last week what repentance looks like. Look what Paul does. Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia saying after I've been there, I must also see Rome and having sent into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So, so what is Paul's plan here is Paul his plan is to take the gospel from where he is at now in Ephesus and to take it to Rome but notice how he's going to even take it to Rome first he wants to go to Jerusalem but in order to go to Jerusalem he says he's going to go through Macedonia and Achaia that doesn't make any sense if he was going to go to Jerusalem the quickest route would be to, to go straight back to Jerusalem to not backtrack his way as he did at the beginning of his third missionary journey and go through Macedonia, which is Greece, as well as Achaia. Why does he want to go there? Well, because he wants to go there 
to visit the churches, the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica in, in Greece or Macedonia, the church in Corinth that would be Achaia. And what does he want to do there? Well, he wants to encourage the body. He wants to spend time, no doubt, opening up God's word, strengthening the body. But he also wants to challenge them. He wants to challenge them that, that their faith needs to be more than talk, that, that they need to walk the walk, that, that they need to go ahead and, and put feet behind their faith. And so he's going to go there and he's going to take up a collection. Why? Because the church in Jerusalem was, was in a hard place. And so the reason why he's going to those particular churches is to raise support. And that's part of his plan, but, but that's really just a side note of his plan. What his real plan is, is, is to take the gospel to those people who have yet to hear. And so when he says that he wants to make goal, the, the end goal of going to Rome, what he's saying is he wants to change his game plan as to what was his sending church. We know up to this point, He's been using the church in Antioch as a sending church, as his launch pad into all of his missionary journeys. But now he wants to change gears. Now he recognizes that the gospel has, has gone all over the place. And, and he recognizes, too, that there's already a church established in Rome. So he's not going to Rome in order to just evangelize because there's already a church there. He is heading to Rome with the idea, with the plan, with the purpose to, to then extend some more missionary journeys going out to Spain. And that is his plan. And notice what he does in order to instill this plan, in order to get this plan in action. First, he purposes in his spirit. Now, if your Bible is like mine, your, your spirit is, is in the capital. It's a capital S for spirit, which generally when we look at that, it is denoting the Holy Spirit. And yet, as you look at the Greek, there, there is no Holy Spirit. Generally, it would be spirit. Then it would say holy and the adjective comes after. But, but we don't see any adjective denoting this spirit as the Holy Spirit. And while I would not even want to say that I'm anything close to a Greek scholar or have any kind of the same understanding that the National Bible Society had or, or the guys that were involved in your particular translation or my translation. Those guys know much more about the Greek and the intricacies of that language than I do. I would say that, that that shouldn't be a capital S for spirit. It's not talking about the fact that Paul purposed the Holy Spirit to do this, because that would be the idea of Paul controlling the Holy Spirit of Paul telling the Holy Spirit what he's going to do. And, and that is not, of course, what happens. What it means is for Paul to resolve in his spirit. It means for him to desire to do something, which is also understood in the end of these verses where he says, I must also see Rome. This was something that Paul desired to do. This was something that within his spirit he was purposing. And no doubt as he was purposing this, trusting that this is where the Lord was leading him, then the Holy Spirit was confirming that as well. And so we see Paul set in action his game plan. Okay, I want to go to Rome, but before I go to Rome, I'm, I'm going to go to these churches. I'm going to take up a collection. Then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to visit the church there, and, and I'm going to be a blessing to that church by giving them some financial assistance. But before all of that, my, my first plan is to send two guys ahead of me. 
And so I'm going to send Timothy and Erastus. And we haven't heard anything about Timothy since, since Corinth. So obviously at some time, Timothy comes back and he joins Paul. And we're not really certain who Erastus is, but he was a fellow servant of the Lord. And so Paul sends the two of them ahead of him to go ahead and to prepare things in, in these churches in, in Macedonia and Greece and Philippi and Thessalonica. And then what's interesting is, is how he wraps everything up in verse 22, right? Because he sends these two guys ahead of him to Macedonia. He's purposed in his spirit to go ahead and do this. This is something he's excited about. He recognizes that Rome is the best place to launch a missionary endeavor. He knows that from Rome, he can do all sorts of things for the Lord. And that this would be an excellent place to hunker down and to establish as his next launch pad, his next platform, his, his next sending church. And yet with all that excitement and with this great big desire, this compulsion, this, this necessity to go to Rome, what do we see him doing? We see him staying in Asia for a while. It's an indefinite period of time. We, we don't know exactly how long. Paul stays in Rome, but after he comes up with this great plan and he sends off his, his two buddies ahead of him, instead of running right alongside with them and catching up to them as quickly as he can, we see so much patience in Paul. And isn't that something we could all learn? Man, I so wish that I was much more patient. When it comes to all sorts of things, how about right now with COVID? I wish that I was more patient, that I wasn't just desiring everybody would be here in church this morning right now. But these things are beyond my control as what was going to happen for Paul was beyond his control. So what did he do? He trusted the Lord. He purposed in his own spirit. Yes, this seems to be where you are leading me. I'm trusting that you are going to lead me here. But I am also just going to patiently wait on you. I will wait on you. As you guide, as you lead, as you direct. And I'm going to trust you that you're going to make it clear to me. We're also told in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 to 9, one of the reasons Paul stays in Ephesus, and, and this is very peculiar, because he actually writes this to the Corinthians. And he says this, he says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So we say, man, I can't leave Ephesus right now. Why? Because there is a wide door for the gospel. And so I can't leave, although I want to leave, although I've set up the plan for me to leave. I'm not going to leave yet. Why? Because there is this door that is wide open for the gospel. So I've set the plan, but Lord, I'm going to trust you. Have you set any plans in your life for, for the gospel and what you're going to do with the gospel? How you're going to reach your neighbors? What, what you're going to do even be beyond the, the, the point of, of retirement? Notice Paul could have done all sorts of things. He, he didn't have to stay in Ephesus. He didn't have to think about going on to Rome. He could have done all sorts of other things. But instead, he chooses to go ahead and be all about what? The gospel. That's what we need to be all about, the gospel. 
And so he wants to stay in Ephesus. Why? Because this door has been opened, this wonderful door of opportunity. But you also hear this. It's, it's almost like an aside. It's almost like a small little whisper. But there are also many adversaries. Man, he has no idea what that really is going to mean, but it's about to explode all around him. As we see in, in verse 23, as Luke gives us a summary statement of what he's about to explain and to present to us. And really what I, I could have entitled this sermon as well, no small disturbance, right? For that is what we see about that time. About what time? The time when Paul has made this plan and he's actually already instituted the beginning of the plan. He's, he's already sent two of his missionaries to go before him. At that time, when at the time when everything seems to be going so good, He's been teaching God's word for two years, right? And, and having such a wonderful time with the believers. And then we see this. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. There occurred no small disturbance concerning the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the way is. That's how they designated them. That is speaking of Christ. Church, no small disturbance. That can be translated as a, as a civic unrest. This is talking about a major commotion. That is what is about to unfold. And yet, isn't this what we've seen throughout the book of Acts up to this point? Whenever we see the Lord doing something amazing and we see some sort of spiritual success, we see the gospel flourishing. We see people growing in the Lord. What do we see next? We see Satan rising up, trying to cut that down, trying to stop that, trying to push everything backwards. And that is what we are going to see this morning as well. And look at verses 24 and 25 as he now explains what this disturbance looks like and who is the cause of this disturbance. And how it starts off as, as just a small little spark. But as it grows, it's going to grow into a great big inferno. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of, of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. There are so many things about this, this text that are, that are just so challenging to me. The first is the fact that we're, we're given a name of one man. All of this that's going to happen starts with one man. A tool of Satan is how we could look at it, right? An influential man. We know that he's a rich man. We know that he's got much prominence. He, he might even be the leader of some sort of guild of craftsmen, of, of silversmiths. And what we're going to see is we're going to see that, that Satan uses this one man to, to, to basically turn Ephesus upside down, to turn it into all sorts of confusion and craziness. And, and yet, think about what the Lord can do through one man. Think about what we've already seen just through the Apostle Peter. Think about what we are seeing through the Apostle Paul. What the Lord can do through what man? One man. Think about what the Lord can do through you, 
through one man, through one woman, through one high schooler, through one junior high, through one grade schooler. What the Lord can do is amazing. And we're going to see some of that now as we look at the Lord's word. And yet notice how Demetrius goes about this, where he starts with. He could have started on all sorts of different fronts, but where he starts with is finances. He goes after money first. What does he say? He says that the gospel, this is what he's saying. The gospel is threatening our business. The gospel is threatening our pocketbooks, right? Our pockets with all the money that we have in it, our checkbooks. It's, it's threatening our prosperity. What this is all about for Demetrius, first and foremost, is money. Money, money, money. That's all that he's concerned about. And what a great lesson for us. Because don't think just because you're a believer that you have a handle on this. No, the, the funny thing about money is that, that the more you, you start to grab onto it, the more money actually turns around and grabs onto you. And the more that you start to just become more and more concerned about money, the more you don't even recognize it, that money has actually grabbed on to you. Turn with me to, to Mark. Chapter 8, verses 34 to, to 37. And we'll see what Jesus has to say about money. For this is really at the core what gets everything going in Ephesus. And how apropos when, when we're going through what we're going through right now as a nation, is it not? Throughout the world, this is something that we must be mindful of. And we should look after one another and we should pray that, that the Lord would provide for us all. But we also must recognize the slippery slope that happens with the love of money. And before you know it, that love of money becomes money just grabbing onto you. And that's what Jesus says. Look at verses 34 to, to 37. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That is what we are seeing in Ephesus. What are they doing? In order to save their life, they are losing their lives. They are losing what they used to count as being so important to them. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? But you see, Demetrius is wise. He's smart. He's conniving. He knows that if he can push the right buttons, he will get the right response. And that is what he is trying to do. And so what does he start with? He starts with money. And I'm not certain that as we consider all that is happening in Ephesus, that, that I really could over-articulate the importance of idol worship for this culture, for the people in Ephesus. And, and you and I in America, we don't get this. We, we don't get this at all. But, but for them, this was everything. This was the basis for the economy in Ephesus, idol worship temple worship and the idols that were used in that style of worship. It wasn't just 
big business in Ephesus. It, it really seriously was the business of Ephesus. And if you and I were to go to an, an, an art museum today, no doubt we'd see all sorts of, of wonderful depictions of art, statues that are just awesome in the, in the way that they were crafted. And yet as we look at them, what we would see is art. Or mostly that's what we would look and see is, is art. That is not how the Ephesians looked at all of these statues. How they looked at them was this was much more than art. This was something spiritual. This was something religious. This was part of their worship. And so as a result, this was something oh so important to them. And it wasn't just the fact of of who this particular goddess was that was important, although that was important. You see, her her name is is Artemis, or the Romans looked at her. They called her Diana. She was also known as Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love. And so they they would also look to her for fertility in order to have children and all sorts of other things. But really what, what it was all about was a cult of prostitution. It was all all about sex, just as our culture is all about that as well. But it was more than that. It wasn't just what this goddess represented, but how she was represented. What it looked like, because as you came to her temple, you were just taken aback with just the massiveness of this particular temple. Do do you recognize that, that the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world during this time? that people from all over the world would come to this particular place to worship, to celebrate, to buy trinkets, to buy small little statues of Diana, to buy small little statues of the, of the temple, to take them home and to make in their backyards some sort of shrine that would, that would be dedicated to Diana, to Aphrodite, to this Artemis. And there they would, they would worship her. They would pray to her just as we pray to our God today. That is what they would do to her. All dedicating themselves to her. Just the pillars alone are are, are just crazy. There was 127 marble pillars in in this temple of Diana, and they were each 60 feet tall. This thing was was larger. The the temple was larger than a, a football stadium. And they had the equivalent of of like a Michelangelo do all the ornate work and being sculpting out all all sorts of stuff. His name was Praxiteles. And so people from all over the world would come. They'd come to this particular temple and they would pay big money in order to take home things from this particular temple. And we would think that as you look at this, that as we see this, that this would seem like a more of a a success story of Satan, of idolatry, than it is a success story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't miss what we see, what is underlying. And it's very clear in the next verse, in verse 26, as lives were seriously being changed, as the gospel of Jesus Christ was presenting itself in such a way that the power of the gospel was evident. It was clear. It was easy to see. 
and everybody knew about it. Look at verse 26. Of, of all the people to give a testament, to give a testimony of how the gospel of Jesus Christ is changing a particular city, it ends up being this guy who's trying to basically push Christianity out of his town. He's trying to basically cut off Christianity. He wants to get Paul out. He wants to get the way out. He doesn't want this influence coming upon his particular city anymore. And yet look at the testimony that he says about the gospel. You see, so he's speaking to these men, these fellow workers of his, after he's appealed to their pocketbooks, to their prosperity, telling them, hey, you're going to lose your jobs. You're going to lose your homes. You're going to lose your lives because of this other group. No, it's more than that. Look at this. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. What do we see here? We see the power of the gospel. We see how lives are changed. And it's not just the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed and people are giving lip service to the gospel and saying, yes, I believe that. No, what we see, what's being represented here is something much, much greater than that. What we see is that the gospel is, is turning things around, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia is what he says. He mistakenly thinks that it's all about Paul, but what he doesn't recognize is that this is all about the gospel, that this is what the gospel does, that it changes things, it changes lives, and as lives are changed, people then take the gospel and go forth. And that's why things are being affected, not just in Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia. And that is what we see is the power of the gospel is put on display. And notice that, that in this too, it's, it's not just that their lives are being changed, but the way that they are communicating must be changed, must be changing as well. Because it, what Paul has been saying has now been passed on to Demetrius. And so perhaps the, the slogan in the, in the city of Ephesus is, is, is no longer about Diana, about Artemis, but in, instead it's, it's this, that, that gods made with hands are no gods at all speaking to what Paul obviously was proclaiming. And now what all these believers are proclaiming, those are not gods. Those are created things. And we are now serving and worshiping the created, the creator, not the created thing. And so in this, we see the power of the gospel being clearly seen in, in these lives. Just think about what a different story this would have been if, if say back when, when Paul was was finishing preaching in the synagogues after three months in Ephesus. Remember that things started to go south for him in the synagogue. And at that time, he knew that the Jews were no longer listening to him. And if he just would have called it quits there, and if he would have left Ephesus and would have said, you know what, I'm going to go back to Antioch. I'm tired of all of this. Then everything that we just hear about here, we would have never heard. What if he had never gone to the school of Tyrannus? And, and taught for those two years. Well, then we would have a whole different story. But he doesn't do that. He keeps pushing ahead. Why? Because he was committed to the gospel. And think about this. 
Think about what these verses are saying about the changed lives of believers in Ephesus. What, what this verse is saying and the subsequent verses are, are saying is that something was recognizable. Something was noticeable in the lives of these believers. What they were giving up was evident in the way that they were living. It seems that it has, it has gone a couple steps further than just having a great big bonfire outside. What these folks are now doing as believers is they are no longer pursuing the things that they were pursuing before. They are no longer buying the little trinkets and the little statues. They're no longer going to the temple. And as a result, there are so many believers not doing that that Demetrius and all of his crew recognize it. Why? Because the financial situation of this particular city is changing. The economics are changing. Why? Because of believers. Man, I've been thinking about this all week. Can, can you imagine what it would be like if we lived like this? What it would be like if I lived like this? What, what a challenge to me. How much have I really given up? How much does the culture around me notice? that I'm giving up something? Or, or how many times do I look just like everyone else? Do I watch the same things that everyone else watches? Do I go and do the same thing that everyone else does? Or am I living differently? What if we as Christians followed suit? What if we as a body of Jesus Christ said, you know what, we are gonna follow the way that the Ephesians are living. We're gonna do things different. We're, we're, we're not gonna, Watch the same things. If there's even a hint of sexual immorality on a television show, it's off. In fact, we're, we're going to get rid of our phones. We're, we're going to, you fill in the blank. What, what about pornography? That is a $12 billion industry. It, it, it is so incredibly evasive or pervasive in our, in our culture. And it has got so much money behind it. What if we actually became more serious about stepping or standing up against porn? What if we as believers said no more? And, and we started taking steps to stop porn. What would that look like? Could we be like the, the church in Ephesus? And could we see an economic impact if all believers in Christ's church in America said, okay, no more. We're all going to stop this. How many billions of dollars would they see suffer in that industry? Because it does come into Christ's church. And I am not the kind of a pastor who, who talks about political things. And for me, this isn't political. What about abortion? What if we took our walk with the Lord, our relationship with the Lord more seriously? What if we truly looked at abortion as we do, that it is not a choice, it's murder. And that we went and we took steps in order to let our culture around us know, hey, this is not what the Lord desires. What if we took such things more seriously and did all that we could in our power to cut such things from our lives? I don't know exactly what would happen, but I, I know that it would be two worlds colliding. 
And I know that as those two worlds collide, that there would be clear battle lines drawn. And that some would respond to the gospel. Some would respond to what God's grace was doing in and through our lives, and others would not respond favorably, right? They would respond in resentment, which is where we think we see things go with Demetrius and his crew. Look at verse 27 as we see this, the, the final part of the gospel that is displayed for us this morning in these verses 21 to 28 is the resentment of the gospel, not just that Paul had a plan for the gospel where he wanted the gospel to go, that he was going to continue on proclaiming the gospel. Not just that, that he, as well as everyone in Ephesus, understood the power of the gospel. But this too, that the resentment towards the gospel comes forth. And, and we see it. Look at verse 27. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. So again, he goes back to the financial aspect that this is going to be difficult on them financially. But then he adds this, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So he goes from appealing to kind of their economic, to their prosperity, to appealing to really kind of their religious bent. And even on, on top of that, it's, it's more of a religious public opinion as he lets them know, hey, this isn't just something about us here in Ephesus. You see, we're not alone in our worship of our goddess. You see, the whole world worships her. And in essence, what he's saying is this argument, hey, if everybody's doing it, then it must be right. And since everybody's worshiping her, then we need to stop this from happening. Because it certainly seems that if the gospel keeps going in the direction that it is going, it is going to stuff out and stop the worship of our goddess. So we need to do something to stop that. But it's not just about us. It's, it's about the whole world because, you know what, the whole world worships her. It's not just us, guys. Isn't that what we're fed time and time again on the Internet commercials, just driving around in our cars as, as we see billboards? And, and what's the idea behind them all is, hey, you need this. And if you get this, this will make you happy. And in fact, everybody's doing it. So how can it be wrong? And yet the reality is it is wrong. It can be wrong. And we need to recognize just because everybody is doing something doesn't mean that that makes it right. In fact, oftentimes, if we notice the whole world is doing something, I would say that should give us cause to pause and stop and, and actually reconsider if this is something that we should be doing at all or if we're just following along suit, just following the masses without even recognizing that what we're doing does not measure up with what God would have us do. So we see that, that Demetrius, he resents the gospel. And this collision that is happening be between his worldview of, of worshiping this goddess Artemis and, and what Paul is presenting in a Christian worldview. And, and really what we see is, is we see this battle. We see this battle raging here in Ephesus, starting off now with Demetrius and his gang, but it's going to grow and we're going to see that next week. 
But look at that last verse as we see clearly that, that this is a battle by the way that they respond. So when they heard this, and remember, this isn't the whole town of Ephesus. This is just the group that Demetrius has called together, fellow workers of his. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In the Greek, it's stronger than that. There is no verb in there that says is. It just says, great Artemis of the Ephesians. It's almost as if it's an equator saying that Ephesus is all about this goddess Artemis. And Artemis is all about this goddess Ephesus. And that's what they're all about. And so what do they do? They become angry. They become so emotionally charged that they can't help but to start just throwing out her name and, and what we're going to see next week. And, and verse 34 is, is they do this again, and, and there they do it in a great big group setting, like an amphitheater that could house 25,000 people. And there they, they make this chant again, but this time they will do it for two hours nonstop. I say all that to say that, that they were so intense in their devotion to this goddess. It, it, it begs me to ask myself, is, am I that intense? My devotion to my Lord. Do, do I consider him like that? And in this, we, we've seen this morning how, how the gospel changes everything and how the gospel can come in and change a culture. That those like Paul who not only purpose to share the gospel and have a plan, but, but those who also understand the power of the gospel and how it can change a culture and how it is changing the culture in Ephesus to such an extent that today we do not see the worship of this goddess anymore. It dies out over time. And they also recognize that when the gospel comes into a culture, that there is going to be a, a collision. And as a result, the response can be resentment. And how would you respond if you were in such a situation as that? As the world responds and says, no, 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 this is what we're all about, something entirely different. How difficult is it for us to stand up against that kind of opposition? That would be incredibly tough, but that is what the Lord desires for us. He desires that, that we, just as they were shouting Artemis, that we would shout, great is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and, and yet the reality is, so many times we say that and, and we, we almost feel ashamed, right? You don't want to say it too loud because somebody might hear you and they might think you're some kind of freak or something. That Oh, that you're into Jesus. No, no, the reality is we need to do that more. I remember going to a concert, and, and I think this was probably before Shannon and I were married, a Crystal Lewis concert. And, and she talked about going to the airport, and she was with her little son, and I believe he was like seven or eight years old. And as they were waiting in line for the airplane, her son started singing the song by DC Talk called Jesus Freak with the lyrics, what will people Think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak, what will people do when they find that it's true? And as he's singing this song, she, she gets totally embarrassed because everybody's looking at her. So she goes up to her son and she, she tells him, shh, stop singing. And he stops singing and, and she kind of pulls him away. And then, then 
It dawns on her what she's done, that she stopped her son from, from proclaiming Jesus to everybody around him. And instead, she says, oh, no, let's sing. And this time I'll sing with you, son. I believe that that's what we need to do more of. That, that we need to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to shine through our lives. And at, and at times, what that's going to look like is going against the flow. You see that the world and, and even our culture isn't going to be changed by, by a, a big, large majority of people moving forward. Following the masses. That, that isn't what we've seen in the book of Acts. It's going to be changed by a minority, by a small group marching to a, a beat of a different drum. And, and the beating of that drum is the gospel. Recognizing that Jesus is the lighthouse that won't be moved. That Jesus is the answer that the world is looking for. That Jesus is the one who will guide us safely home. The question is, are, are we willing to stand out? Are we willing to go against the flow and trust that the Lord wants to use us? And are we, are we willing to come up with a plan on how the Lord would use us? Let me close our time with just these points to ponder that have been challenging to me all week long. So now I present them to you as a challenge. Number one, consider how Paul and the gospel caused no small disturbance. How do you see Christ's church today creating a disturbance in our modern culture? How might believers do a better job causing a disturbance? How might you do a better job causing a disturbance in our culture? When I say disturbance, I don't mean a bad disturbance. What we're going to see with the apostle Paul is, is later as things wind up and as, as things actually end up working okay, it's going to be told that that Paul and the, the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesus, that they weren't doing anything that was blaspheming their goddess. They weren't robbing the temple. And as a result of the way that they were living their lives, that's what brought all of this pressure, what brought all of this commotion. How can we bring good commotion through our lives? What does that look like? Number two, consider how Paul wasn't afraid to openly oppose the worship of the goddess Artemis. And again, it wasn't that he was holding up signs or, or burning idols. No, he was doing it with the truth. But he was speaking. He was letting them know that, that gods that are created are no gods at all. What issues or areas might you be willing to step out against and oppose in our culture? What would that look like personally? What would that look like culturally? How might we, as Rancho Baptist Church, as a church body, oppose such issues? What issues are worth opposing? Number three, consider how the Ephesians respond to Demetrius by crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were intense in their worship. Are we as intense in our worship as the Ephesians were in their idol worship? For myself, I would have to say most times no. How about you? How intense are you about your worship for the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me pray and then we will sing a song together before Pastor Tom comes and closes our time.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for the reminder of how precious your gospel is, how your gospel can indeed change everything, how your gospel can change a culture. You did it in Ephesus, Lord. We pray that you would do that here in America, here in California where we live, throughout the world, that your gospel would shine forth, that you would change us, and that through the change that you are doing in us, that our culture would be changed as well for your glory and for your namesake. In Jesus' name.